Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to another edition of The Readerly Report. Today, Gail and I are going to be talking about the true crime that we've read and really appreciate it. So I've been pushing for this show for a while because I read quite a bit of, I don't know, I go in spurts where I read a lot of true crime. So I have some varied books, like they, I I feel like they're from different walks of life. And I encouraged Gail to look because I felt like she would have more true crime than she thought she did because, you know, true crime is not just like murder mysteries, but they can be about financial crimes, you know, any crime that's taken place. That's like that, that's a true crime. So (laughs) in addition to that, of course, we will tell you what we have been reading and yeah, Gail. What have you been up to reading-wise? Yeah. Okay. What have I been up to reading-wise? So I don't know. February slowed down for me. Like I had such a good clip going in January and I don't know what's up with this month. I like, I keep watching TikTok instead of reading. But anyway, I do have some (laughs) books to discuss. I read Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau. And I can't remember if I mentioned this on our last episode because it's been a little bit, we took a little bit of a break because Nicole was moving. So Mary Jane is about a girl growing up in the 70s in Baltimore. She comes from a very conservative family and she gets hired by a family down the street to babysit for their daughter for the summer to be their nanny. And that family is made up of a husband and wife who are much more liberal. He's a psychologist. They're Jewish, whereas she you know, comes from a Christian family. And this very famous rock star and actress move in for the summer because the rock star is trying to recover from addiction and he's seeing the psychiatrist to help him kick his addictions. So she gets exposed to this completely different type of people, different type of living. You know, it's very loose and free and nudity and music and blah, blah, blah. And just it's like a coming of age about sort of how we, when we get exposed to different people and different ways of living and different ways of thinking about how we grow. I liked it. I didn't love it. I thought it was, I don't know, it's not a whole lot happens. It's kind of repetitive. I I posted on my blog that for me, it was kind of like a three and a half star. Like it was fine, but nothing great. And I got a surprising amount of comments from people who really loved it. People who grew up in Baltimore and they said, this really evoked a time for me. People who just, I don't know, people, I, I seem to be overly critical of this book and there were people who just adored it. So. It's a quick read. I did it on audio. I thought the audio was pretty good. And, um, you know, if that sounds appealing, give it a try. Don't take my word for it. But for me, it was just fine. has a great cover. Then I read a book called The Net Beneath Us by Carol Dunbar. This was recommended by Susie of Novel Visits last year, and I had recommended it for my book club. So we picked it for our current read. And it is a book about a woman, it's a family grow, that live in very rural Wisconsin. I believe it's Wisconsin. And they live off the grid in a house that they're building. The husband is building this house. So it's unfinished. It has no electricity and heat. It's very bare bones and definitely not ready to withstand like a Wisconsin winter. And then the husband, there's a husband and a wife. The wife is from the city. So she's really like a fish out of water. She's 
very much in love with her husband and has agreed to move to this sort of remote place, but she's not in any way prepared to, to sort of handle things. And he gets very, very severely injured in a logging accident. So she has to deal with living with two small kids in this remote area without her family around. She's been kind of sort of disowned from her family because they didn't approve of this lifestyle she's leading. And she has to learn how to survive. You know, is she going to stay in this house? Is she going to move? What are they going to do? And it's a really, it's a sad book because it's about grief and loss because of what happened to her husband, the loss of this man and this dream and this life that she thought she was going to live. And, you know, it's a lot very atmospheric. It's about, you know, the cold and the winter and the snow and the seasons. And it was good. It was sort of, you know, dark and relentlessly sad, but again, about personal growth in some ways, you know, similar to Mary Jane, which had a very different feel to it, just about how you get exposed to a different type of life and how that forces you to change and adapt and find things inside yourself that you didn't know that you had. So those are the two books that I've finished and I'm in the middle of two books, which I would like to mention. One is The Light Pirate by Lily Brooks Dalton. This was a book of the month pick, maybe December. This is climate fiction. I'll talk more about it once I finish it. I'm a little over halfway through and I'm really, really liking it. And it's, boy, like, I keep thinking like, what is it that will actually take people to like, feel compelled to act about climate change? You know, it's clearly the news isn't helping and the statistics aren't helping and the movies, you know, don't look up, aren't helping. So will fiction do it? Like sort of you have to like immerse yourself in these characters' lives and see what's actually going to happen to like our coastal cities in the next 30 years. I don't know. Maybe a book like this will do it. I wish that every, this should be required reading for everyone. It's just, it's very powerful. That's so interesting because I was reading, was it the Washington Post that had a list of the cities that was were going to be most affected by climate change? Of course, New York is number three on that list. You know, Manhattan is basically, the lower half of Manhattan is mostly built on like, I don't know, they just like brought landfill material or something in order to flesh out, <laughs> flesh out the island. So as flooding increases, you know, that really impacts transportation and since yeah. it's such a hub. So that's something that's kind of been top of mind for me lately, especially the living where I do. The West Village is is definitely like below, or I guess part of that made up island, and it's definitely susceptible to flooding, which I learned right. with Sandy. So yeah, I don't well. know. It's just like such a complicated thing. And I and I do feel like on on the one hand, the people you know, the difference that we really need to make to be very impactful with climate change is mostly not in our hands, which makes it frustrating. Right. Because we, you know, as many individuals participate, and, you know, I just believe in participating in things that renew the environment or will be helpful to the environment, you know, like recycling and and whatever initiatives that you can get behind to support that are important but we can't you know like if right if exxon or the companies are you know spilling stuff into the environment and then there's like this whole thing with the toxic train crash in ohio and like we just really need big scale and that just does not seem to be happening quickly enough 
Right. Okay. Um, and then the last but I'm seeing a lot more of those cha- climate change novels too. Cli-fi. Yeah. It's this whole new genre. Cli-fi, cli-fi. <laughs> has its yeah. own. Yeah. Has its name. Yeah. It's good. I like this one a lot. So I recommend it. And then the last thing I'm reading, this is exciting. I'm reading J. Ryan Straddle's new book, which is called oh. Saturday Night. Yeah, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. If you've listened to the show for a long time, you know that my favorite book in the entire <laughs> world is The Kitchens of the Great Midwest by J. By there were a couple Straddle. of years where we yep. heard about it weekly. <laughs> weekly, yeah. I've been good. I've been good. So he, this is his third book. And it is due out, I believe, in April, I think. So I have an advanced copy and I'm maybe one third of the way through it so far. And he said to me that people are telling him that it's like they either love it or hate it. Like this is either by far their favorite or they don't they don't like it. So it's he thinks it's sort of polarizing. And I'm not so sure I agree with that. It's I, it's not kitchens, and nothing will ever be kitchens. And I need, and I know that, but I like it, and it's different. Has a really different tone to it, but it still has some of the like classic J. Ryan elements to it. So I will hold on talking more about it until I finish it. But so far, I like it. So, do you think that he's shaping up to be an author who writes? differently about different topics? No, he does not write about Or does he topics. have a core? Is he writing the same story? He's writing the similar settings and, and his his books always have an element of food in them. Kitchens was all about food. The second book was about a, a, a brewery, like a, a, a sort of like craft, you know, it was, it was called the, it had lager in the title. I'm now forgetting the name of the title. Miss... Minnesota Lager Queen, something like that. But it was about, you know, it's about about beer and making beer. This one is about restaurants. And so food is always going to play a big element in his books. And they're always set in Minnesota, the Midwest. So there's those common themes that go through it. And those are always the backdrop for family, family interpersonal dynamics. And so, like, no, I do not think he's writing the, a different book every time. I think that he finds different ways of exploring and he, he, the characters change. But no, I would not say that they vacillate differently. It's not like Ann Patchett. Right. Okay. Yeah. He's got his comfort zone. I mean, these are things that he loves and is passionate about. He said this is his most personal book. And he, his mother died when he was younger and I think that this book has a lot of elements of his mother in it. I love the title. I feel like I would just like it based on the Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Yeah. It's got a great sort of fifties, sixties feel to it. The cover is perfect with the fonts. It's yeah. I mean, you know how I feel about him. I love him so much. (laughs) So yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to like tear through this one. I'm really trying to like savor it. Cause I'm just so excited that I actually have it. And he, you know, he, it's a long time between books. Right. So, you know, it's, it's Which rare I that I have, yeah, it's rare that I have like a J Ryan straddle book to enjoy. So I'm trying to do it slowly. How about you, Nicole? So for newer, newer listeners, I'm just going to point out that if you want to, we have an interview with, or he, he was on the podcast yeah. with us. He was, he came so on the show. So if you dig back into the archives. 
And if you haven't read Kitchens of the Great Midwest, <laughs> then what the hell is wrong with you? Like, pick it up right now because it is the best book. <laughs> I just adored it. Yeah. Okay. okay. Cool. Take it away. What are you up to? So I read a book that's coming out on March 7th. It's called What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez. If it were nonfiction, it would fit into our theme, but it is a fiction book about Ruthie Ramirez, who goes missing when she, I believe she's 13 years old. So this book is basically about how her family has survived in her wake. Like her father dies, I think in the, in the subsequent years, her mother has a very difficult time with the loss of her child and her two sisters grow up, you know, just kind of always missing and wondering what happened to their sister. So the sisters, Nina and Jessica, like one one of them, I think the older one, Jessica, she sees a woman who looks amazingly like Ruthie on this late night TV show. And they hatch a plot. You know, they don't want their mother involved, but eventually she becomes involved. They hatch this plot to go and to confront Ruthie and to see why she, you know, ran away if this is indeed her. So I really like this story. It was just kind of taking perspectives from the past, you know, examining your life and what was going on from the vantage point of being an adult and looking back and seeing how you felt about certain things or people you might have suspected or things that were going on in the background. So it's very much like a generational family story. It's kind of incidental. I mean, of course, Ruthie has shaped their lives and their her disappearance has shaped their lives in so many different ways, but it is about, you know, how this family has managed to gel and ways that they have not managed to gel in the wake of her disappearance and how their relationships change and, or how they have renewed faith when they think that they have a chance to find out what really happened to Ruthie all of those years ago. So, you know, I have often said that I don't like books, especially if they are billed as being filled with humor or anything like this. But this is one of those books that has natural humor, just the way the sisters relate certain things, just like the nostalgia of growing up and reflecting on things that you liked as you as you grew up and teachers you met. So there's like this natural humor to it that I really enjoy. So this one, this one huh. is really good. I've, I've been seeing that one around. That's great. I'm glad you like it. So my next one is a book called Mame by Jessica George. And it is about this young woman who is basically stuck within her family. Like she is the good one. She has an older brother. Her dad is sick. He has Parkinson's disease. And basically she is tasked with taking care of him. Her mother for you know the past several years has been alternating her time be- between where they live in London and in the family home in London and spending time in Nigeria at this hotel or this hostel that the family inherited and run. So she's mainly responsible for running it and she switches off responsibilities. So often she's not there. And Mame, whose name, you know, her name is Madeline. Her name is not Mame. Mame is a nickname, which means like little mother or young woman or something like that, is tasked with taking care of her father. And she really doesn't have a life of her own. But her mother 
is coming back from Nigeria and is going to be spending time at home. And so she takes this time to have a life, to like move out, make new friends, maybe find a more satisfying job. You know, she's working in publishing, young black woman working in publishing and I don't know, suffering from microaggressions, you know, being passed over, wanting more for herself and for her career and looking for ways to make that. So it's kind of like her coming of age she gets to spread her wings a little when her mother comes home and she is encouraged to like go out and find herself and live her life. And of course, that doesn't necessarily go smoothly. There's some there's situations that pop up. So it it was really good. I liked it. It was I think very real issues like I really was rooting for her to find herself and to like spread her wings a little more and find out who she is in terms of like not being a, a caretaker. So it was like lots of themes of of motherhood and what that means and, you know, how family dynamics can really shape who you are. And to kind of like the sibling dynamic, you know, things are very different from her brother. He has just like a more carefree life that he has been encouraged to lead. And so it's really about her trying to figure out herself and taking back some of her autonomy over her life. So that was a really good one. I've heard such good things about that one. I think you would like it. You know, it's such a, I don't know. It's just like college age, you know, or right post-college finding yourself kind of novel that I feel like we appreciate here. Yeah. Okay, so Gail, why don't you kick us off? <laughs> She's been dreading this show, but I think you probably found some really good ones. So what's your first? I don't know if I'd say that. Okay, my first one is the most obvious one. Well, I don't know. I think your true crime is going to be different from my true crime, just because of what I tend to be drawn to. So my first one is Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, which I know you knew I was going to review, was going to mention. Bad Blood is the story of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. It is a painstakingly detailed detailed and researched account of the fraud committed by Elizabeth Holmes when she ran Theranos. She, this was written a few years ago. So this is before she was tried. We all know, of course, that she has been tried and convicted. And this was before there was a, was it Netflix? I can't even remember. One of the streamings did a series or a movie on this. So everyone knows this story. But at the time that this book came out, I think the scandal was still pretty raw and new. And it felt very revealing to read this book about what happened. And you know, for those of you who don't know, she founded this company called Theranos, which promised that with a simple machine that it could run a whole series of tests on blood very quickly and at much lower expense so that it seemed incredibly appealing to anyone, you know, any hospital system, pharmacy system, whatever, healthcare system that needs to do, you know, mass volumes of blood tests. So this is financial fraud. It is very interesting book. It's, this is told in a very journalistic tone, 
style. So you, you know, you really are feel like you're just reading a very long series of newspaper articles about this scandal. But I thought it was really good. And I know you read this as well. I did. Yes. Totally agree. Yeah. I think that you read it after I I (laughs) was just raving about this book, because as you said, this came out when I don't think as much information had been gathered about Elizabeth Holmes in one place. Like there may have been been a couple of articles, but this was the guy who was basically tasked with reporting her story and came out of his articles a lot of, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of the research was backed on the articles that he had been writing about her and kind of sounding the alarm before before it all broke. So it was like really fascinating to read at the time. I think it's still, I think it still holds. I, I agree. I agree. Like even if you've watched the show or watched the trial, which I didn't watch, then I still think this is a, you know, a good founding for it. In my blog review, I called it a riveting and deeply disturbing story of arrogance and greed. So I think, you know, I find financial crimes really interesting. So I recommend this one. All right. What's yours? So my first pick is killers of the flower moon, the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. I love investigative true crime i think when they are when things are either linked together or there is just like a an historical overview of how things came to be so this one was basically about how the fbi was formed when this the crimes against the osage indians in the 1920s were being investigated like the osage became really wealthy. They were, of course, you know, like partitioned on a reservation, but the land that they happened to inhabit was mineral rich and oil rich. So they had the rights to to these resources. And the tribe, you know, at the time, you know, in the 1920s, they were just like millionaires many, many, many times over. But one by one, they started to like, to be killed off. And it took a while before they even discovered that this was, you know, maybe intentional and that the crimes were linked and like part of this, this bigger thing that had to do with the money, even though it was something that had kind of been whispered about on reservations. And it takes a look at a lot of the relationships that the women's women have with their husbands. It takes a look at you know, the legal system, the advantages basically, or how, how disadvantaged this tribe was in terms of legal terms, having like guardians who were acting in their interests and how sometimes they weren't in control, how husbands married into families in order to get their hands on this money. So the investigation brings out all kinds of just fascinating details about the crimes that were committed, you know, like I mean, it's just like horrific. Some of them were committed against the same family, you know, like people just being really predatory. But it's like one of those things that, you know, we don't really get history like this. So to get that deep dive, it is just, it is fascinating. And I think the FBI was just basically in its infancy when these crimes were being investigated. J. Edgar Hoover appointed this investigator who was a former former Texas Ranger to 
see what to like get to the bottom of these crimes. And his name was Tom White. And just a lot of things that he did, like eventually became procedure and it grew the FBI. So Apple TV, I think uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be in a movie later on this year. It's, it's been a long time coming, this movie, but it's, it's, they finally made the movie of this book. So look this for is it. like your, if you want to get the story, some this is other your way. kitchens of the great Midwest. Like you have been talking about this book for years, raving about it. Yes. Yes. I think it's so, so well told. Like I said, I love the bigger historical, just like how, how this came to be, how they came to be on the reservation, the oil rights, the fights. It's just like, you know, such good history. All right. So my next one is a book again, not about, you know, physical crime. This is more about identity theft. And it's called The Less People Know About Us, A Mystery of Betrayal, Family Secrets, and Stolen Identity by Axton Betts Hamilton. So this author grew up in small town Indiana, and she was living in a very, very small town, and they were sort of stuck there because they she had sick grandparents, so they couldn't leave. And strange things started happening when she was in middle school. So mail kept getting stolen. Their utilities would get cut off. Money would disappear. They were living this life of sort of chaos and insecurity because someone was perpetrating these crimes on them. And it was her parents got kind of increasingly paranoid as her mother determined that they were victims of identity theft. So they were living in like darkness, you know, their shades were drawn and their lives became very small as her parents really kept her, prevented her from kind of going out and doing anything. So um, I don't want to reveal too much about how this crime ultimately gets solved and how they figure out, you know, who it is that's causing all this damage on this family. But it is a chronicle of a childhood and a young adulthood that are overshadowed by paranoia and anxiety and what, how that, what that impact had on her growing up. So it can be kind of stressful, but there's a mystery element to it as you're trying to figure out, you know, what is going on here and why are these, you know, why is this one family being subject to so much, you know, so much fraud and so many issues. So I don't think this book got a ton of attention and I think it, it it's a good read and uh, I recommend it. So again, The Less People Know About Us, A Mystery of Betrayal, Family Secrets, and Stolen Identity by Axton Betts Hamilton. I would be interested to read that. When you first mentioned this book, I knew that I, I knew the outcome just because I feel like I had seen either I'd listened to a podcast or I'd seen a documentary and it was a fascinating story. So I'm sure to like get, you know, a lot of times when you get the documentary version, it's so condensed that you don't get a lot of the details. I think even if you actually know the answer, it's still really interesting. Yes, I agree. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. Did you no. feel like you... Oh, that's a great question. And I don't remember whether I knew the answer going in. 
that should tell you something right there that I don't know whether I already knew whether it was spoiled for me before I started or not. And it was still a suspenseful and good read. I don't think I did actually, but I can't say that a hundred percent. So you don't think you knew and you also did not think that it was going to be who it turned out to be. Yeah. Well, I think I just had an open mind. I didn't know. So it, okay. I think, I think regardless, I liked it. Okay. So my next book is one that in the early days of the show, I talked about all the time. This book is the book that if you ask me for a single book recommendation that I give everyone, whether you love fiction or nonfiction, like if you love a good story, this is narrative nonfiction at its best. It's called Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President is by Candace Millard. And it to, my, to this day, it's still like, if, if I hear someone have, hasn't read it, or if I know that people like to read, I would say, check out this story. So it's about James Garfield. He's like this president who, he was president very briefly. Like, you know, Garfield is not one of the names that you will hear mentioned historically because he was assassinated while in office or he was shot while in office because the drama of this whole story is that the bullet wound, he might've ultimately survived if his doctors had not treated him in the way that they did. The story also follows the life of the madman and like kind of what led him to shoot Garfield. And it's also at a time when penicillin, Joseph Lister has just like discovered a bunch of things. Like, so penicillin is coming to the fore and people are learning more about, you know, just general hygiene and what's helpful in, in treating patients. Like, you know, just like washing your hands, something so basic can be very crucial. So like I said, narrative nonfiction that kind of wraps up these four different elements, Garfield's life, you know, his would be assassinator's life, the treatment that he received, like the story of how penicillin is being developed and hygiene protocols it, you just, you can't put the story down. Like I said, it's told in a narrative style. So it is much like reading a novel, which is why I recommend it even to people who love fiction. And it's just, it's so good. It reminds me probably of the devil in the white city. And I, when I think of the professor and the madman, you know, like that guy who, I don't know, developed the Oxford English dictionary mm-hmm. or whatever. And he was in a mental asylum. It, it just reminds me of stuff like that. When it's just any of these stories, like the discovery of penicillin and, and hygiene protocols, or, you know, Garfield was, he probably, he probably would have had a great presidency. He was like, so decorated and you know, just like kind of a Renaissance man interested in so many different things, but all of them together is just such a fascinating story, how they intertwine and overlap. Okay. So my third one is about one of the greatest crimes ever committed. And when I say great, I mean, largest scale. I also mean most awful. And the book is The Only Plane in the Sky by Garrett Graff. And it is an oral history of 9-11. I read this book in at the end of 2019. And it is exactly what it says on the cover. An oral history of the day of 9-11, how it unfolded, and, and following. This author 
talked to a wide range of sources, people who were on the ground, first responders, people close to the president, people in all of the cities, people where, you know, where all of the planes hit. He synthesizes it, which must have been an incredibly tedious and long process, synthesizes this into a very readable oral history. Is really, really hard to read. And it is really interesting. And I learned a ton of things I didn't know, things about, you know, particularly what was going on with the president at the time, like what he was allowed to do, what he was allowed to say, where he could go. A lot about how people were evacuated from the city, you know, all all things that happened on the ground. It's just, you know, it's a really good book. There are probably people who are going to say, I just can't read it. And I respect that and I understand it. And it was definitely not one that I read quickly. I read this, you know, in spurts. I I couldn't read it before bed, (laughs) but I'm so glad that I did. And I think if, if you think you can hack it, I would recommend reading this book. It is, you know, in my lifetime, knock on wood, the worst thing that has ever happened to this country. And it's, you know, given the distance and, the ability to, you know, delve into what was probably classified material for a long time and is now not, he was really able to piece together this fantastic book. So that is my recommendation. The Only Plane in the Sky by Garrett Graff. My next one is I'll Be Gone in the Dark. One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer is by Michelle McNamara. It was actually finished for her because it was finished posthumously. She died while she was working on it. And I think within a year of the book coming out, a year to two years, they were able to make a break in the Golden State Killer case. So this book is about Michelle McNamara. She's married to an actor whose name escapes me, but she settled down living with him, raising her child, I believe, from a previous marriage. So she documents a lot of like her process and what it is that she's thinking as she's trying to, you know, like be present with her family, raise her daughter. But she's looking into like this really, you know, just like deeply traumatizing crimes, even from the perspective of researching it. Because like the Golden State Killer, he started off as a rapist and he escalated into a murderer. And I don't know, he may have had between six and 10 victims where he actually, where he killed them, but that he committed like these very violent rapes of women in these, you know, small bedroom communities where basically this was not expected that this would happen. He usually committed these crimes when their husbands were in the room with them. But she started out Before she wrote her book, she had started out a blog that was looking into different true crime stories. And this one just became one that she became obsessed with. And she, I believe, was having trouble sleeping while investigating the story. And she kind of just did not want to let it go. So I think she took an overdose that was just basically related to trying to get sleep and managing other illnesses while she was researching this. The level of research that she did, like the leads that she chased down, what she was looked into, she's always been figured to be instrumental in, you know, just keeping the case going and like working with a retired detective to shed more light on this. 
So ultimately, this crime was solved by DNA that was given, and they were able to kind of narrow down the options from relatives who had given DNA, and, and they came up with a profile and were a- was able to arrest him. But when I talk about a book that I could not read in the dark, talking about haunting, this was something that I had to read not only in the daytime, but also not close to bedtime because I needed to be able to like go and do other things and kind of like have my mind cleansed so that I could get a good night's sleep. But I highly recommend it. This was also made into an HBO series, a six-part documentary of the Golden State, the Golden State Killer. All right. So what's up next, Gail? What's your last one? So I have a fourth nonfiction. So Nicole was right. I was able to scrape together four true crime books. So Kudos to you for expanding my mind. So my fourth book is another one that's gotten a lot of attention. My Friend Anna by Rachel Deloche-Williams. Again, the crime here is financial. It's fraud. This is about a, it's written by a woman who is a job as a photo editor at Vanity Fair, moves to New York as a 20-something in the mid-2010s, and meets a, a charismatic friend named Anna Delvey. And Anna Delvey has got lots of money. She's an heiress. She lives a very lavish lifestyle. And she starts to hang out with Rachel a lot and usually pays for things, but sometimes she sticks sometimes she sticks Rachel with the tab, but you know, it's that's unusual. So they're living this great life together, super social through New York City, and then she decides, they decide to go on vacation together. They're going to go to Marrakesh. Anna Delvey has proposed that they're going to go on this vacation and she's going to bring Rachel with her and that they're going to film it for a documentary. I mean, it's all this kind of like shadowy, shady thing that's going on, but it sounds really appealing because it's a free trip to Morocco and it's going to be great. It's a beautiful hotel. Well, they get to Morocco and then things start to get really weird. So without giving away too much, it, it starts to appear that Anna is not necessarily as rich as she says she is and or she seems to be ducking the bills and really take a, a turn for the difficult from there. So I don't want to say too much. Most people have heard of this story. It was turned into a Netflix series. It was sort of the inspiration, I think, for a book that got a lot of attention last year called Cover Story by Susan Rigetti, which I also read. And it's just a really addictive story. So you may be wondering, like, why do I care about this one friendship and the amount of money involved? It's not, you know, we're not talking about bad blood here. We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, but it's, it's just a really compelling book. I had trouble putting this one down because I just, it just like, once you get sucked in, it's, it's a great read. So that is My Friend Anna by Rachel Deloche Williams. (laughs) Yeah, that tale is still unfolding here. I think the latest that I had heard is that she's starting a supper club, like a monthly supper club. Which one, Anna? Out of her East Village. Yeah. Oh, my God. Out of her East Village apartment where I think she's on house arrest. Yeah. I don't even know. I don't even know how she's not deported. Yeah, that's crazy. I had no idea that she was back and scheming again. Oh, yes. Before we finish, I'd love to throw in a couple of other books that I think are adjacent 
they're kind of true, true crime adjacent so that if these books are appealing or if you've read these books and you want some other stuff, here are just some other ideas for you. The first is Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok. You and I both read this one, I think. And it is the story of uh, a, a woman who goes missing in Amsterdam. She's born to Chinese parents in New York, but she's sent to live with her grandmother and cousins in the Netherlands when she's an infant. She moves back to the U.S., but then returns to Amsterdam for a visit and disappears. And the story is told through her perspective leading up to her disappearance and then by her younger sister who flies to Amsterdam to try to find her. So she actually, Jean Kwok also came on our podcast and I think she talked about this book on the show. So if you've read it or if you read it and want to know more, look for the show with Jean Kwok where we talk to her about it. True crime, I not that this book needs any introduction or any more airtime, but where the crawdads sing. <laughs> it does read like true crime because it opens with someone who's been accused of a murder. And then we go back and figure out what led up to it and did she do it or did she not? And is Crawdads worth the hype that it got? Uh, that's up for debate, but it is a good story. And so if you like that kind of story and for some reason have returned from many years on Mars and didn't know about this book, Where the Crawdads Sing is by Delia Owens is I think, you know, true crime-esque. And then Counterfeit, which is by Kristen Chen, is a book about, it's a novel also, but it's about counterfeit handbags. And it's about the friendship of two women, one of whom is deeply involved in the crime of selling fake handbags from China that are, you know, sold for thousands and thousands of dollars in the United States. And it's about this whole, one how one friend gets really sucked into this scheme by her by the other friend and how that gets resolved. So I recommend those three. One more in that vein that I'll recommend, like fake true crime, would be Rebecca Mackay's new book. Oh, I'm so excited to read it. Have you read it? Did you Did you get it? I'm I'm midway through. Oh, it's my next. I haven't started through. it. It's my next book club book. Is it book club? Book club yeah, we're book. reading it for book club. Yeah. Are you liking it? All right. Well, we yes. Okay, good. Yes, we should we should make it our book club. I think our her last one was our a book club book of ours. All right, let's do that for our next one. But since we're both, yeah, with since we're both gonna be reading it, yeah, yeah. So Rebecca Mackay's new book, I have some questions for you. Is it combines a lot of things that I think are catnip for us. First of all, it's about this woman who attended boarding school and she goes off and she becomes a film professor at UCLA, but she also has her own podcast where she investigates the deaths of, I guess, up, up and coming starlets over historical Hollywood. She's invited back to her boarding school to teach a mini semester, which is like a semester that they hold in two weeks in between regular semesters. And she goes back to teach a class on podcasting and on film studies and one of her podcast students decides that she wants to look into a true crime that Bodie was involved, well, not involved with, like she used to be roommates with the woman who was murdered, but, you know, just 
based on time that has gone by and just kind of like the new, I guess, sensibilities of the time because it's set in 1988. 1998, rather, at the height of Me Too, she is like kind of re-examining all of the things that, you know, she went through when she was in boarding school and looking at them with a new eye. So I think that one's really good. Yeah, I want to get back to it once once we're done today. Okay, so my last book, and I'm going to make it quick because my heat has come on. <laughs> So hopefully you guys don't hear it in the background, but like the pipes are like and the steam are doing, doing their thing. So my last book is An Unexplained Death, The True Story of the Body at the Belvedere. It's by Makita Brotman, who I believe just writes different memoirs. You know, she picks like a different topic. Like one was about her dog, Grigsby. One was about her time when she was volunteering in Baltimore literacy classes at a prison. So this one is about her apartment building, the Belvedere, which used to be a fancy hotel. And the guy's name is Ray Rivera. Somehow he manages to plunge through the roof of the hotel and into a parking structure and commit suicide. It is deemed a suicide, but it seems very unlikely. So she sets about kind of investigating the history of the hotel, other people who have committed suicide at the hotel, and she also investigates the Ray Rivera case. So this is a one, like if you don't like true crime where the author is inserting herself or telling it from the perspective of her life, then this might not be for you because, you know, she is examining like her decision to move to the Belvedere and how she feels about, you know, the cases that have gone on at the hotel and, and, just how it developed from a hotel into the apartment building that she lives in. I don't know. I find stuff like that kind of fascinating. So I really like this one. Nice. Sounds really good. So there we have like eight true crime stories plus four non (laughs) four fictional true crime stories to dig into. Thanks to Nicole for stubbornly proposing. Yeah, I knew you had read for a true crime. I know. Of course, you had to remind me. If you expand your definition of, I mean, yeah, it's just crime, right? It does not have to be murder. I think we automatically link it to murder. Yeah. But there's like a lot of financial fraud and medical fraud. And (laughs) I don't know why I love fraud. I find it so interesting. I don't know. Would you say Nomadland is something like that? No, I actually sort of thought about that. No, I don't think it's crime because nothing, there's no criminal, there's nothing criminal happening. It's, I mean, it's sort of about like, you know, a whole segment of society that's really being taken advantage of, but I wouldn't say there's crime involved, but I will, I will say it's a fantastic book. So if you haven't read it, read it, but yeah. All right. All right. So it looks like we have our next book club pick. Good. All right. Yeah. So Pick up the new Rebecca Mackay, and then you can read along with us. We'll, we'll discuss it in a couple weeks. And until then, happy reading. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Readerly Report. You can find all of our shows on iTunes or at thereaderlyreport.com. Please join our Facebook group, Readerly Report Readers, where you can talk to other listeners about their reading life. You can also find Nicole at nicolebonia.com and me, Gail, at everydayiwritethebookblog.com. 
finally, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes and told your book-loving friends about us. Thanks. Thanks.